Welcome to the Inspired Living with Autoimmunity podcast, the podcast for high achievers who want to stay sharp, focused, and full of energy despite their diagnosis. With your host, National Board Certified Functional Medicine Health Coach, Julie Michelson, where Julie helps you take your power back from autoimmunity. And now here's your host, Julie Michelson. Welcome back to the Inspired Living with Autoimmunity podcast. I'm your host, Julie Michelson, and today I'm joined by Dr. Eric Ozanski, and we're talking about all things thyroid, including the rarely addressed hyperthyroid condition, Graves' disease. Dr. Eric is a chiropractor, clinical nutritionist, and certified functional medicine practitioner who helps people recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. Our conversation will cover differences and similarities between Hashimoto's and Graves, including symptoms, triggers, and treatment pathways. If you have questions about thyroid health, you're in the right place. Dr. Eric, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, same here, Julie. Appreciate the interview and look forward to hopefully sharing some great information with your listeners. I have absolutely no doubt. I always love to start out asking, you know, how is it that you got to be doing what you're doing? I'm guessing when you were a young boy, your dream wasn't to be submerged in in this world. So tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. So my background's a chiropractor and I became a chiropractor because I hurt my back and, you know, just was practicing traditional chiropractic for about seven and a half years. But in 2008, I was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. And, you know, going back a little bit before that, I, you know, how did I know I had hyperthyroidism? Well, you know, I was, honestly, I was dieting, detoxifying. And so I was losing a lot of weight, but I had no idea at the time that was related to the hyperthyroidism. But one day I was walking around a Sam's club and, you know, they have those automated blood pressure machines. And I took my blood pressure and my blood pressure was fine, but my heart rate was elevated. And that was kind of unusual. So I, of course, the next few days was just measuring my heart rate at home. And, you know, every time I measured it was between 90 and let's say like 110 beats per minute, which definitely is on the higher side. And, you know, so I started putting the pieces together and the weight loss and the elevated heart rate. And so I I saw a, a regular doctor who did a thyroid panel, diagnosed me with hyperthyroidism. And then eventually I saw an endocrinologist. And, and the endocrinologist did some additional testing and diagnosed me with Graves' disease. And I, at that point, I, I knew I was going to f- take a natural approach just because of my backgrounds. And so I, I you know, changed my diet and did some testing and took supplements. I mean, well, I'm sure we'll talk about some of these things here. And, and long story short, since 2009, I've been in remission and at that point, when I was in remission, I just decided to make the transition from practicing chiropractic to helping people with, you know, thyroid, autoimmune thyroid conditions. And that, in a nutshell, is, is my background. And I always, I always feel like I'm cheating because the whole purpose of this podcast is to let people know they can reverse their symptoms. They can create remission. They can heal. Without a doubt, everybody that comes on has 
if not, you know, some kind of personal healing story, if not their own, it's a loved one. And so I'm so excited to dive into most people have heard, and I've had several episodes that address Hashimoto's, right? So a lot of people, when they hear autoimmune thyroid, that's what they think of. They think of low thyroid. Often we think of, you know, I, I don't know, this is maybe that's because that's when I got it. <laughs> I think of women in their forties, right. Or perimenopausal women, women who've had other autoimmunity, although I, I it's, more common younger and younger, but, but Graves is much more rare and yet they're both autoimmune thyroid issues. So I, I want to dive into some of those differences and then that overlap because people say to me all the time, and I have my RA the right way program and I'll get somebody will contact me and they'll say, well, can I work with you? I don't have RA, but I have, it doesn't matter, fill in the blank. And you and I were talking before I hit, we hit record as far as there's certain approaches that are just across the board going to you know, address autoimmune issues in general. And yet the symptoms for the two are, are so different. So I, I think people hear Graves or hyperthyroid and there's an urgency it's almost really a 180, right? Sometimes it takes people a really long time to get diagnosed with Hashi's because their symptoms just aren't that alarming for providers. And I feel like the reverse is true when if somebody in the Western medicine world tests and finds out you're hyperthyroid, there's this urgent, you know, get it taken care of. And I want to start there because because of that, I, I feel I feel like there's an urgency to find the functional medicine practitioner that can help you or that alternative practitioner that can help you because, you know, share a little bit about that typical endocrinology route. What did they want to do for you or to you when you were diagnosed? Sure. We, we could talk about all that. And so you're right. Definitely with hyperthyroidism, there's more urgency and it's usually diagnosed a lot faster because with Hashimoto's, the, the, the process, I mean, they're both autoimmune processes, but with Hashimoto's, some of the symptoms could be attributed to so many other things. So when someone yeah. experiencing fatigue, for example, you know, a lot of different things can cause fatigue or, you know, weight gain and, you know, just so a lot of people just attribute it to, well, you know, I've just been working too hard and, you know, just to just diet as far as weight, weight gain. And, and so it'll, and, and then if they go see an endocrinologist, they might not even show up as being hypo on the, on the, with the blood test, sometimes maybe subclinical hypothyroid where the TSH is normal and thyroid hormone levels are at least within the lab range, but it takes, it does take most of the time years for it to affect the thyroid gland. So with, with hyperthyroidism, you know, if someone is having a lot of weight loss, which isn't always the case with hyperthyroidism, it is one of the more classic symptoms. And I lost 42 pounds when I dealt with hyperthyroidism. Wow. So, so that was a lot of weight. And then as I was given my story before, when combined with the elevated resting heart rate and heart palpitations, I mean, some of these symptoms could be pretty extreme and scary. So most people aren't going to wait around to, to see their doctor. They're usually going to eventually sooner than later get diagnosed. And so, so yeah, big difference between 
Hashimoto's and Graves' disease, hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism, of course, are the symptoms. And, and sometimes it could be overlap. People with Hashimoto's can definitely get hyper symptoms. Usually it's more transient, whereas people with um, Graves' disease, again, they could also experience some hypo symptoms. But usually the hyper symptoms are more prominent. And, you know, I mentioned a few of them and you, you could get decreased uh, muscle mass and, you know, loose stools, diarrhea. Again, it's just a lot of different symptoms uh, that, again, are, like you said, kind of the complete opposite with, with Hashimoto's where you're a lot of time, most of the time gaining weight and you have coldness where, again, you have more like heat intolerance with the hyperthyroidism. And what, as far as when I went to my endocrinologist, and it was only a single visit, honestly, because again, I knew I was going to take You're a smart. natural approach. So I just wanted to really get that official diagnosis. And I didn't have the knowledge now that I had back then. So, you know, I did want to see, to see a specialist. And, and quite frankly, I think it's a good idea for most people to at least get that initial diagnosis and see, you sure. know, an endocrinologist. Uh, but when I saw the endocrinologist, she recommended antithyroid medication, methimazole specifically, which is commonly recommended for, anti, um, for hyperthyroidism. A lot of endocrinologists do pressure their patients to receive radioactive iodine, which is ablating the thyroid, as well as thyroid surgery. And honestly, she did not pressure me. She was one of the rare cases. And again, back then, I didn't know any better. But then as I've been working with patients over the years, I realized it's very common for them to at least bring it up and many times pressure, but she, she was more laid back. She did recommend the antithyroid medication. And again, I, I chose not to take that. And we could talk more about that. I took an herbal sure. approach to manage the symptoms, but, uh, but yeah, the urgency that we were again, chatting before this about how many endocrinologists panic and, you know, they just are scared to death of the person being hyper. And, you know, of course the medication can do the job, but to, to be fair, side effects are common. So I'm sure they're also concerned about the side effects of antithyroid medication, but everything's risk versus benefits. And I think it's a little bit extreme, you know, for the, to, especially when it's an autoimmune condition, it's not primarily a thyroid condition to have the person, you know, either ablate their thyroid gland or to remove the thyroid. Absolutely. And I have, I'm sure you encounter as well, you know, people that went that route and that doesn't solve their problems when it's autoimmune. Unfortunately, it may solve the thyroid level at that point, but I, and I had shared with you, you know, we, we've had experience in our family with, and that's why we do the podcast, right? Because when you have a trusted physician who is acting, you know, in, in good faith, like there is urgency. I know at least in our experience, it was, you know, concern about the heart, right? You mentioned elevated heart rate people often, it is interesting other than the weight loss, you didn't have yet other physical symptoms. You didn't feel palpitations. You didn't have that racing, but that was the, oh my gosh, heart, heart, heart. We need to do this right away. And, and for me, I find that, it, and again, it's the both sides. It's unfortunate. It could take somebody years to get diagnosed with Hashimoto's. And it's unfortunate that, that people feel a, then a sense of panic and like you need to take action immediately to, to fix this. Not everybody has that first instinct of like, oh, I think I'll check other approaches. So you mentioned that you you used, and we don't have to get into, you can get a specific or not, you know, this is not medical advice, everybody, we're sharing stories, but 
again, we went from, you know, you need this antithyroid medication. And again, many people here, you know, or ablation or removal, and you were able to, to, you mentioned herbs. I know there was diet change. Let's talk a little bit about, okay, you know, what, and it doesn't actually have to be your story. Let's just talk about, because I'm sure you're, you have so much more experience now. Let's talk about your approach. Somebody comes to you and they have graves. What does that look like? Where do you even start? Sure. Well, like many other practitioners, of course, I have them fill out, you know, a comprehensive health history and all that good stuff. But one of the first things I do want to make sure that they're doing is keeping safe. So if they, if they're taking antithyroid medication and if they're tolerating it well, you know, really no, no side effects or minimal side effects. And if they're okay with taking it, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not going to try to talk them out of it and which I can't anyway, I'm not, you know, if I'm not the prescribing doctor, so I would never do that anyway. But, but honestly, a lot of people need to take the antithyroid medication. So in my, my situation, when I dealt with hyperthyroidism and I was given the methimazole, I dismissed it initially, but my thought process was, let's go ahead and try to manage the symptoms naturally. And if it didn't work, then I would be open to taking the antithyroid medication. But there's, as you mentioned, we're not giving specific recommendations, but there's a there's an herb called bugleweed, and there's another one called motherwort, and bugleweed has antithyroid properties. So it helps to lower the thyroid hormone levels. And so I figured I'd give it a try. And when I dealt with hyperthyroidism, when I, when I had graves, I didn't know anybody else who successfully used these methods. So I, I, I was skeptical, but you know, I just figured I'd give it a try. And the bugleweed worked really well with me. It doesn't work with everybody. You know, I'd say probably like 70% of do fine, but that's why if someone's taking antithyroid medication, you don't want to just make the transition because you don't know if the bugleweed will be effective. And again, different story if you're having a lot of side effects or if it's elevated liver, liver enzymes. But so that's number one, as far as making sure, you know, they're safe. And, and again, it could be either medication through their prescribing doctor or an herbal approach. And then after that, just trying to find the triggers and underlying imbalances. And I mean, some of this could be accomplished through a health history, but I do like to do different types of testing. You know, most of my patients will go through adrenal testing and probably part, a big part of that is because when I had grazed, my adrenals were in horrible condition and I, I, I was in denial. So I, I didn't think they would be as bad as they were. I figured that I, I thought I did a good job of managing the stress, but, but yeah, I was definitely wrong. So, so yeah, <laughs> I adrenal always say you don't have to feel stressed out to have taxed adrenals. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, adrenal testing, you know, sometimes I'll do comprehensive stool panels. I mean, it depends on the person, you know, adrenals pretty much with everybody blood testing, you know, with, with certain blood tests with everyone. And then really on a case by case basis, I, I try to be more conservative with the, with the testing, but it does depend on the person. If someone's having a lot of gut issues and, and, and you can't always go by symptoms. So sometimes it's challenging, but, but you know, you got to start somewhere. And so I use the case history and the initial consultation as the starting point to determine what tests a person will need, or I think they need. And then when we get the results, you know, give recommendations based on that. I mean, initially I will 
also do things to help with inflammation, like a lot of other practitioners do when it comes to autoimmunity things, such as making sure they have sufficient omega threes and you know agents to help with the gut, like probiotics. And like I said, it depends on the person. I, I try not to overload them with supplements, especially in the beginning, because I want to try to find answers. Right. But but yeah, essentially that's the beginning approach: is trying to make sure they're safe and then try to have them do some testing to find some of the triggers, underlying imbalances, and of course the diet. So the diet, diet and lifestyle is huge. So I do recommend dietary changes. And, you know, in this day and age, a lot of people go on the internet and they, they follow, you know, they, they kind of have an idea of what to follow, you know, just w- whether it's autoimmune paleo diet or paleo diet, or, you know, some will follow ketogenic diet. But to me, diet's a starting point. There's no one diet that fits everybody. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it is important, of course, to eat a clean, healthy, anti-inflammatory diet. I love that. So you mentioned, you know, I feel like it's the word I say most, which is inflammation, right? You're looking for those drivers. And, And here's the difference between, you talked about symptom management, and also root cause and looking for triggers. And there's, that's the piece, you know, the endocrinologists are looking for symptom management and leaving it at that. What, why do some people get graves? Like what you hear autoimmune thyroid and we can all kind of wrap our head around, okay, fine. You know, it's targeting thyroid, but what would drive graves? And I don't know that there, <laughs> I, I personally really want to know your answer to this one. I don't know that there is a, an answer. It's probably like diet, not one thing, but how does that even happen? So you probably heard of the, the triad of autoimmunity, the three-legged stool of autoimmunity, and that really applies to different autoimmune conditions. So there does seem to be a genetic predisposition but as you know, just because you have the genes doesn't mean that you're going to develop a specific health condition. So the other two components are equally important. And if that's so number two would be exposure to one or more environmental triggers. And then the, the third component is an increase in intestinal permeability, which is a medical term for a leaky gut. And so, so in, in my case with Graves disease, you know, when I did, I did certain testing, I'm sure stress was one of the main triggers. You know, there's, I look at four categories of triggers. So, so food, stress, infections and chemicals, and, you know, you could, it's, you could have multiple triggers. So, you know, stress, I, I think it's safe to say in most people is at least a factor, you know, it doesn't mean it's the only trigger. Many sure. times that's not the case. So that's where, again, diet comes into play and eliminating common food triggers. And, and some people might have a gut infection such as H. pylori, or you know, there's some evidence that viruses like Epstein-Barr at least might play a role. And uh, you know, still we're tr- learning a lot, but you know, the, so the triggers and then the gut, most of the immune system cells are in the gut. You need a healthy gut to have a healthy immune system. So it does make sense that if the gut is compromised, that that at least could be a factor when it comes to autoimmunity. So that those seem when it comes to different autoimmune conditions, at least as far as we know now, and there's, you know, there, there are other factors. I don't want to get too, too into detail, but like regulatory T cells, which keep autoimmunity in check, but you know, then again, what affects the regulatory T cells and cause them to get lower. So, but, so I really try to make it simple and stick with those three factors, because if you address 
well, again, you're not going to address the genetics, but if you find remove the triggers, heal the gut, you know, most of the time that will help greatly in getting the autoimmune condition in remission. Absolutely. And I love that you hit on, I remember when I first started this work, actually, when I first was knee deep, maybe elbow deep in my journey before I even started this work, and I learned about root causes and triggers. And, you know, I I was looking for my root cause, singular. (laughs) And you'd hear that, right? Functional medicine is root cause medicine. And and I, I don't know that I've ever encountered anybody where it's just one thing. Right. It, it where, because I look at when you say, you know, diet driving inflammation, you know, well, that's a stressor or, you know, all of these things kind of cross categories and nobody lives in a bubble. And, and so, like you said, it's stress may not be the main driver, but it plays a, a role. And so I just like anybody that finds me and comes to work with me that I've yet to encounter somebody who didn't have gut permeability, <laughs> because by the time they've got one, two, three, four autoimmune diagnoses, and they find somebody like me or like you often like you, it's, it, it's just a known factor. And yeah, we, we test, I, I don't even use permeability testing because I always do <clears throat> to create that personalized diet. We're always, as we're healing the gut, looking at food sensitivities. And when somebody has a two page list of you know, immunoglobulin responses, I know you have leaky gut and we could spend more money. We can t- check, you know, some people want to, they want the data, but it, it, it just is at this point, a known factor, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I used to do a lot of leaky gut testing yep. using, uh, you know, I use Cyrix labs or intestinal permeability antigenic test. And, you know, I found just about everybody tested positive. And when, when they were negative, I would question, you know, is it, <laughs> is it a true, is it a, you know, true negative or a false negative? And so either way, I just, I, I started just, just assuming it. everybody exactly. And yeah. the downside of those tests is, is that they don't tell you what is causing a leaky gut. So you spend a few hundred dollars, you know, you have a leaky gut, but it's really not helpful. I don't think in the healing process, because regardless, like you said, you, you want to focus on the gut because yeah, I don't think also I've encountered anyone with a perfectly healthy gut. Now I come across people who have no gut symptoms, you know, yes. where they're like, oh, I feel fine. My bowel movements are fine. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a, you know, 100% perfectly healthy gut. I don't think really anybody in this day and age has it with the, all the exposures, the glyphosate and everything that's out there. I was going to say, you know, I don't think you can step foot on the the planet, but it's, it's actually even, you know, I know my, my daughter was born with multiple toxicities because she lived in my cesspool of a womb Mm -hmm. for nine months. So yeah, you don't even actually have to already be (laughs) standing on the earth. Our exposure level is just, is just greater than we can typically manage at this point, unless we're addressing it, you know, unless we're doing these things. So you're lo- you look for the triggers and you address those as, as what All you're right. saying. Uh, but number one is make sure the symptoms are managed uh, while you're kind of doing this, this other. So you're using testing, you're using history. It sounds like it's a, it's a process. You mentioned no one diet and you mentioned a few different, what I would consider good approaches diet wise. Do you have a preference or how do you guys say somebody comes in and they're, 
on the standard American diet when they get to you, you know, where, then where do you start? What is your process with, with diet for that thyroid issue? Yeah. I mean, uh, good, good question. So, I mean, I do like autoimmune paleo as a starting point. Like I said, it's not, there is no perfect diet for everyone and you have to make modifications for some people. If, if someone's following just a standard American diet, it might be a real difficult transition to go into AIP. So they might be more, they might make the switch initially to regular paleo, like standard paleo, even Mediterranean. If someone's eating, you know, McDonald's, you know, or other types of fast food on a regular basis and a lot of refined foods and sugars, then again, the really the number one goal is to try to eliminate the refined food, sugars, unhealthy oils, just try to eat in as much as you can stick with the whole food, try to eat organic. I mean, even without following AIP strictly or paleo, that's a sure. big task for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, for some people, just gluten-free is a huge challenge. So so that's where it could depend on the person. We don't want to scare anybody away or to stress them out even further if they're not ready for, you know, autoimmune paleo diet or even standard paleo diet. But those, those would be like kind of starting points because really we, I do like to do some type of elimination diet. And, you know, and there's no perfect, I guess, perfect method. There's, you know, elimination diets, food sensitivity testing, they both have values, but, and, and everybody has different approaches. So here we've, you know, typically I do a food, a food sensitivity test. I'm, I'm sorry, I do an elimination diet and the AIP kind of, to me, serves like an elimination diet. Well, it but is, a, if it's done yeah. properly, I, I, it makes me sad. People will, you know, show up at a consult and they'll be like, well, I've been on AIP for two years. And I'm like, well, tell me about it. And they're still in the elimination phase two years later, which is not how it's, I happen to be an AIP coach. <laughs> so okay. I'm like, no, you <laughs> you're doing it wrong. You know, people think like, oh, AIP is so restrictive. And I'm like, well, did you do your reintroductions? You know, it just depends. Not but a permanent like, diet. That's a good no, point. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not. AIP is a lifestyle. And, and it is interesting because AIP also encompasses those other things that you and I are, are working with, other lifestyle areas, it's really not just food, but people just think of it as this, they think of the elimination phase and they think that's what AIP equals and it, and it doesn't. But like you said, for some people, that's way too restrictive to jump into. And for other people with a long list of food sensitivities, it, it's you're not removing the right foods. And so I personally, I use a blend, but, but like you, it's, it's all individual. And I want to highlight, you said my favorite thing. And that's, that's what I always say. Cause we love to ask, you know, well, what's the right diet? Doesn't it, there's a variety of approaches, but the key I believe, and I heard you say it is whole food, real food, you know, certain foods for sure, all organic, if you can, and if you can't, you know, definitely at least dirty dozen organic, you know, controlling what we can, but it is amazing what the body can do with real food versus what, you know, what it can't do with all the processed junk. Yeah, that is true. And, and one thing that's important to mention, this gets back to the triggers. There are people that work with me and I'm sure people that work with you that once again, even before getting started, they've been on AIP. And, and like you said, right. maybe they're not doing it right. And, uh, and sometimes 
it's not strict AIP. They might really be following more paleo or worse than that, where they're following AIP, but, you know, eating other, you know, things that not are even paleo friendly. But but, I just, (laughs) I saw that this morning, somebody had recommended like a meal, a meal planning place. I'm always looking for resources for, for clients. And I went on the website and it was like, Oh, good. You know, they have a gluten-free menu option and they had a paleo menu option. And in the list of what's included in the paleo, it was dairy optional. And I'm like, okay, that's not paleo. (laughs) Don't call that paleo. (laughs) This is why people get confused. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's weird. But, but yeah, but but what I was going to say is that if someone is following a strict AIP diet, and not getting results, it doesn't yeah. mean that it wasn't beneficial. If you were doing everything right and it wasn't cause, you know, causing an improvement in symptoms and or your blood tests, for example, you know, very well, just there's probably other factors. And that's where, what I was talking about, not just yes. food as being a trigger, you know, it's, it, but it's definitely, a, and regardless of how you feel when following the diet, it's still an important piece of the puzzle. And, I, and we definitely both would agree that if you continue eating inflammatory foods or if you follow AIP and you just dis- dismiss it, oh, I followed it for three months or even six months and not, nothing changed. So I'm going to just go back to the old diet. You know, that's definitely not, not a good approach because, again, you're, you're almost definitely won't heal taking that approach. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing. It's never a one prong approach. And yes, diet is important three or four years ago, that was always a, a, the, for me, like kind of the low hanging fruit, the easy starting point with people. Typically these days we, I mean, I collect information about diet. We don't even start making diet changes until we start with stress management because, you know, I have seen people like you have coming, come in and their diet is dialed in even, you know, for them individually, but their symptoms haven't changed at all. And it's like, oh, well, you know, what's your stress management routine? Oh, you know, I don't have one or, you know, and so, and again, it doesn't mean if you just focus on stress, you're going to heal either. It's, we have to hit all of these areas and it is a, it's a process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sleep, of course. I mean, all these things are important. And again, they're all just each a piece of the puzzle, as you said. You know, someone might already be eating a great diet, AIP, and managing stress and sleeping well, but maybe they have a gut infection or maybe their toxic load is too high. So that's why it's it's detective work. That's that's really the process of, you know, functional medicine doctor is just to, you know, there are some people that, they have an autoimmune condition and all they'll do is eliminate gluten. They won't even fo- uh, follow strict AIP. They eliminate gluten and then they're like, wow, I feel so much better. And maybe their blood tests even greatly improve. And you know, so again, you can't compare yourself to others. And it's difficult, especially in the age of social media, where you could easily find others who are getting great results, maybe with, you know, diet and again, not following strict AIP. And, and then you're like, well, you know, if they... If they could do it, I could do it. But then when you try it, you don't get the same results. And that all comes down to the biochemical individuality as well as, you know, being exposed to different triggers. I, I love that. And I, I always say, like, like you're saying, we know there's certain things everybody should do. And I, I joke, I do pick on, I say diet should be individual. It should be whole food. And if you have an autoimmune condition, you should not eat gluten. Like that for me is the, 
And that's my own personal opinion because of the research <laughs> based on science, but that, you know, that, that gluten does not serve anybody with autoimmunity. If you want to, if you take the time to heal your and really do that work, it, to me, it doesn't make sense to put gluten back in. And there's no nutritional value that it's not like these are nutrients we can only get from eating bread or pasta <laughs> that's not required, but, but then like you know, beyond that, when people ask me all the time, well, you know, I'll eat what you eat. Tell me. And I'm like, I hope you don't have as restricted of a diet as I seem to need to have to, to feel amazing. So that's the other point as far as not, we've mentioned, you know, the AIP elimination phase is restrictive and it's supposed to be a phase or whatever elimination plan you're doing. What are your feelings about that? Uh, you know, are there things you tell people? Do you tell people, you know, avoid gluten completely? Or do you tell them, you know, what's your approach on what people should or shouldn't be eating long-term? I mean, I agree with you. In a, in a perfect world, you know, there's really no need to eat gluten. I mean, really dairy too, but. Thank you. you. Know. I was like, <laughs> that's always my, yeah. and sorry, dad. I, we were in my family. Was in the, oh, and there are the puppies. <laughs> my family was in the dairy business. Um, and so I always feel like I should apologize when I, I say dairy is inflammatory. Yeah. Now I will say, I, I will admit that, you know, since I've been in remission since 2009, now, have I been completely dairy-free? Have I had zero gluten exposures? You know, I'd be lying if I said, you know, and some people are definitely better than me. And, you know, and because like you said, there are some people that flare up when they, you know, get, get exposed to even a small amount of gluten, but but you're playing with fire and same thing, you know, and all, all the gluten exposures, you know, that I've had over, you know, the last, you know, 12 plus years. And, uh, you know, same thing with dairy. It, it also, could, I mean, there's, you know, there's health benefits, but there's so many other health benefits to the other foods too. So, so I guess to answer your question, it really is up, obviously it's up to the person, but, and there, there are some people just like with you, I'm sure even without giving your opinion, they say, you know what, I'm just going to go gluten-free. Sometimes I'll say, I want to go, you know, I'm going to go dairy-free permanently. But yeah, I think in a perfect world, we all probably should go gluten-free and maybe even dairy-free. But I will say, you know, I have no problem eating a gluten-free pizza, but, you know, and I know there's the diet cheese and all that, but usually I do have, if I have a, if I have a gluten-free pizza, it is, I am usually having the dairy, so... I, well, and I would support that. <laughs> I think sometimes the alter the alternatives are not ideal either. And this is why I love the reintroduction phase. I always joke. I said, I can tell you all the reasons I think you should never eat gluten again. You need to feel how you feel when you eat yeah. gluten. And, and I do have clients that it always makes me sad. They do a gluten reintro and they don't notice anything they feel totally fine. And so those are the people that are going to occasionally have gluten and that's fine. They're going to, they're going to stay great. And then I have people that, you know, I, I always say what your body tells you is what's going to determine what's a never food, what's a sometimes food, what's a once a year food. You know, some people, you know, depending on symptoms, like I'm like, okay, then don't eat that before you get, give a big speech or, you know, 
It just depends on what your symptoms are going to be. Yeah, I agree. And I mentioned a pizza, obviously, when I was getting in remission, <laughs> I was avoiding pizza for quite a long time. So it's, and it's right. You know, so just want, want, want to make that clear. That's not one of the first <laughs> foods that you you'll be reintroducing if you're doing AIP. So <laughs> yes, yeah, so we usually reintroduce both the dairy and the gluten toward the end. And I too, I was dairy free for years and years. And the more I learned, and the more I practiced, the more I realized, oh, there are many people who, you know, goat dairy doesn't seem to be an issue. I wonder if I'm one of those people and I am one of those people. And so I will have that once in a while because it doesn't bother me. Um, still probably not the most ideal thing to have all the time for me, but I can, I can get away with it. And I always say it's not about perfection, right? It's about healing and creating resilience so, you know, for you, it's, you can have the pizza. I had a pizza yesterday, but I made it myself with a grain-free crust and, you know, pesto and no cheese, <laughs> but. And you, and you I should, I mean, if you're eating, ideally, if you're having a pizza, you really do want to try to make yeah. it on your own. Cause if you go outside, even if it's gluten-free, they're using probably unhealthy oils like soybean oil and right. who knows what else in the pizza. So, and then, if, you know, the dairy, if you go out, it's, I'm sure it's having the hormones. I mean, there are some places that are more natural, organic. Uh, there, there's a place in, in the Charlotte area that does have healthier pizzas, but still it's best to to make it on your own. But one question I have for you, uh, since we're talking about dairy as an AIP coach, what are your thoughts about ghee? Because I do have a lot of patients asking about ghee. And according to some reintroduction diets, ghee is allowed in the earlier stages of reintroduction. I, again, this is just speaking as a functional medicine coach. And I allow my clients use ghee unless we know if you have a dairy allergy, don't, don't go there. Don't go near there. But I let my clients use ghee during elimination for dairy. And actually I even take it a step further. And this may come from my bulletproof coach time, (laughs) but I, we will do butter as a separate reintroduction because I have a lot of clients who are, there's so little protein in the butter that they, they do butter. I'm personally, I, I do fine with butter. So a lot of people are are fine with butter and then people like my poor daughter, she can feel it. It it doesn't work for her, but even she who's super sensitive to butter uses ghee. Okay. So yeah, we have good success with it. I I used to be, this will be my first time cursing on the podcast. I used to be a hard ass, you know, I used to be all about perfection and now I'm about, you know, realistic. What's your lifestyle? Make it sustainable. And you know, control and reduce where we can so that we can handle what we're not controlling. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. I like it. So, and I know you you have a gift for listeners. Tell us a little bit about your thyroid checklist. Yeah, so my thyroid checklist, it's a checklist to help people be more aware of the different types of triggers and you know ways on how to find the triggers because that's a as we were discussing that's a big part of getting into remission you know as we mentioned the genetics we can't control but we can't do things to find or move the triggers and i mentioned the four categories four main categories of triggers but then there are different triggers within each category so with the the, the thyroid checklist i 
just uh, to help with awareness and you know where how people could find those triggers. That's amazing and so helpful because it allows you said you know functional medicine practitioners are detectives. It allows people to start their detective work, right? They can you can share what you find through using the checklist with your practitioner and you know because as you mentioned earlier it is such a process. I always say, you know, there's so many rocks to look under. If you have, this is where you get your clues of where do you start or what, where are you going to move the needle the most by, by addressing. So the link to the checklist will be in the show notes. So thank you for sharing that with, with listeners. It's a huge asset for people. What is one step people can do today, right now? What can people start? What can they do? to start to improve their health? It's hard to just say one step, but, <laughs> well, because diet's so I important. Know. So so, if, uh, so, I am going to go the stress management route, though, just because okay. in my situation, stress was huge. Not to say diet's going to play a role, but also in the literature, there are studies showing, you know, I know correl- correlation doesn't always mean causation, but there, there's research showing that gr- that stress could be a potential factor, potential trigger when it comes to Graves' disease. And of course, we could say that with all autoimmune conditions, but there's not research with o- every single right. autoimmune condition. And then just, you know, being that I've worked with people with Graves, you know, hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease for so long now, it's definitely a big factor. And you kind of alluded to it earlier. A lot of people overlook the stress management and they focus on the diet well before, not everybody, but it's not uncommon for people to clean up their diet on their own, but they're not doing enough from a stress, stress management perspective. And I think people should be doing things every day from a stress management perspective. So you also get some people that are doing things, but they might be going to a yoga studio, maybe like twice a week, or maybe doing it at their home. And you know that's their definition of stress management, or they're exercising, which, you know, I mean, I feel better when I exercise. And I do think sure. it helps with stress. But you know, it's, it's more of a sympathetic activity, not a parasympathetic, uh, parasympathetic activity. So yeah, long, long response to your question. But if I had to choose one thing, uh, and again, it's difficult. Uh, diet know, is I definitely mean. up there, but 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 I, w- I would say the stress management. Well, and you would say daily practice, correct? Daily exactly. practice, and that's key. And I always say to everybody, you know, find your practice. Whatever you will do daily is the best daily practice. I don't think you know breath work is more important than yoga or more important than meditation or you know. I joke a lot of my clients, you say the word meditation and you can literally see their blood pressure rise. <laughs> so I say, you know, whatever you'll do daily um, Agreed. Is, is, is the way. So before we wrap up, links for everywhere to find you will be in the show notes as well. But where's the best place for, for listeners if they're listening and they don't want to look in the show notes, what's the best place to find you? I would say, well, I'll give two. So one is my website. Nat- my main website is naturalendocrinesolutions.com. And that has hundreds of different articles, blog posts. Uh, a lot of them focus on hyperthyroidism. There are some also for hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's. But then also my podcast, which if you visit savemythyroid.com, 
and click on podcast or visit Apple or Spotify and just type in Say My Thyroid. And that has a greater emphasis on those with hyperthyroidism. So like pretty much all the solo episodes I do focus on hyperthyroidism. And then when doing interviews, you know, that, that could benefit people with both Graves and Hashimoto's. But yeah, those would be the two main resources. Love that. And I love the name of your podcast. It's the best. (laughs) Thank you. Dr. Eric, thank you so much. You've shared amazing gold with us today. Thank you, Julie. It was, it was a pleasure. For everyone listening, remember you can get the show notes and transcripts by visiting inspiredliving.show. I hope you had a great time and enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Julie Michelson's Inspired Living with Autoimmunity. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to get a transcript of this and every other episode, just head on over to inspiredliving.show or click on the link in this episode's description. There, you can also find everything we discussed in this episode, including links and information about our guest. You can even send in your questions to be answered by Julie in a future episode. That's inspiredliving.show. Until next time, this is Julie Michelson's Inspired Living with Autoimmunity podcast, helping you take your power back.